You're listening to a podcast from Bayside Church International. Good morning. Hi. I have the great privilege this morning of introducing you to, I'm not sure whether I call him a friend of mine, if I'd, if I'd do that, he, he certainly knows a lot about me, but uh, I'm here this morning to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ray Andrews. You have to say it with an Irish accent, you see. Dr. Ray, can you put your hands, huh? Oh, that's Scott, oh, they all sound, they're all the same, aren't they? It's, I am, uh, you know I live next to a guy that plays the bagpipes, I've told you that. Uh, Scotland. It's all right, lads. Don't worry about it. I've got to put on my leprechaun. That's the one there. That's it. That's the one. It's the leprechaun. Uh, put your hands together for Dr. Ray. What, Ray, why don't you come here? I'm going to introduce Dr. Ray uh, actually over the course of today. Rather than just handing him a mic and preaching, which he's very good at and he can do, we've decided today to go with an interview style, just something God put on my heart two weeks ago. And I'd like to open a conversation with Ray and have you listening in. Can I sit down? You can sit down, yeah. <laughs> G'day, mate. Thank you. Thank, you for being, thank you for being here with us. Mm-hmm. Can I say something first before you start? I, I, I probably don't have the choice. Yes, I'd, 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 I'd love you to. Just so you get the Irish right, top of the morning to you. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say before we start to thank you so much for the privilege of being here and your beautiful wife. And uh, it's been such a great time with you and Jay. And Yesterday we had a ministry time together with the staff and ministry, and we had the best day. And uh, I just loved working with everybody in the hungry, receptive hearts. I love working with hungry, receptive hearts. Amen. And thank you for the privilege of having me in the church this morning, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will deposit something in you from what we share together. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much. And now, brother, you're the boss. (laughs) Mm-hmm, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> now listen, we, when we first met a few years ago, one of the things that helped us to connect quite well, and I think uh, me to trust you, I'd never been to a counsellor before, I'd never sat down with, uh, with someone who really did not know what to expect and wasn't really looking forward to it, although I had booked you eight months ahead, um, so I had quite a while to, to get used to the idea of being worried. Um, but uh, one of the things that helped, I think, uh, instantly a trust bridge between us, a few things that we had in common... Uh, both of us have a real um, strong theology in God's grace and understanding of the goodness of God and how important that is. Both of us are very um, aware of the importance of people being grounded in identity. That's a massive thing for us here. Um, and uh, both of us also really believe in authenticity and being honest, being real. And that is a, a, a massive value for us. This is mm-hmm. a room today of very real people with very real challenges, very real struggles, very real emotions. Uh, very real um, issues, concerns, and joys in life. Uh, fortunately, all that, uh, over all that as well, we serve a very real Jesus. And uh, so we talk yeah. real in this family. And I wanted to, this to be a real authentic, real time that can be raw, uh, can be open, it can be honest. We're, we are all for that. And so trigger warning this morning, there's no taboo subjects. I'll um, just see what comes. No, not really. All right, I want to start. I want to talk a little bit about your life and use that as a bit of a platform. You have an Irish accent because you were born and raised in Ireland. There's the clue. There's the clue. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) spend the first 21 years of your life there. How many siblings do you have? You were born into a family. Six of us. There were six of you in total. Um, You were born in the middle of the war, 12th of May, 1943. Yes, sir. It was a Wednesday. Yes. Um, I do my research as well. 
you were, so you're, you're born in that, in that time. You came to know Jesus at, as a child or as a teenager. You had that privilege. Teenager, yeah. As a teenager, you yeah. knew the hand of God was on you and you had a, some, a special call in your life back then. Uh, but you also had to, with all the joys of that, walk through the challenge that many of us are familiar with of having a uh, complicated family, uh, if we put it that way. You had a, one of your parents was quite aggressive mm-hmm. and uh, quite abusive, uh, addicted to alcohol. And um, that is a common thing that many of us have experienced. Um, mm. uh, parents with complications, as it were. Parents are people, after all. Um, how did that shape your, I guess, your psyche or your soul? Did that mm. influence your view of God? Many of us who have uh, not-so-great parents, it, it hinders our view of God. Um, and how do you, yeah, how, how did that influence your life like that? Mm. And how do you, as a preacher, who, a New, a New Testament person, you believe the Scriptures that tell us uh, and encourage us to honour our mother and father uh, when some of us know the very real situation of not being able to find much very honourable about our parents at times. How, mm. how do you negotiate those type of things? What's your story there? It's mm. a lot of questions. <laughs> Maybe we start from the beginning. But um, yes, to do briefly, because we've only got limited time, and uh, I do want to share, though, that uh, the journey has been quite an amazing journey, and I did. I grew up in a, a, in a farm uh, with uh, the, the siblings. I'm in the middle, and I grew up uh, in a fairly dysfunctional home. My father was a brilliant man. Uh, he ran his own business and ran the farm, although I don't call it a farm much in Australia because when I came here and found out what a farm was and realized it's thousands of hectares, and we came off a few, ha- a few acres. <laughs> I just didn't tell people we were on a farm. But growing up on a farm, and my father was a, a brilliant man. He run the farm, had his own business, did a lot of things, and kept it alive during the war. And uh, those days were very difficult because I was born uh, in the middle of the war, so Hitler was uh, putting gas across Britain. And uh, so I, my first two years uh, of my life were in a capsule. And uh, other members of the family had gas masks on, but I was in a gas capsule uh, because of the gas that was coming across uh, from England. So it was difficult. But uh, what was really difficult is we were alienated completely, and uh, I don't have very much understanding of what it was like uh, to be a parent or to have a parent or whatever that was like because my father was very abusive. Um, (coughs) I mean, he was really abusive. What he... (coughs) Excuse me. He, uh, uh, he would get drunk, but he didn't have to get drunk to get mad. He just had one of those Irish tempers. And uh, he just took off, and uh, uh, he would beat us. And uh, it, it, he would do that sometimes unmercifully. And uh, I, uh, I guess that I could have been in the Olympics and doing athletics because I'd learned to run a lot. And uh, I, I, was, uh, I was running from a young boy trying to run at five years of age. We, in those days, and uh, uh, thankfully there's a few older people in the meeting today, which Chad has been very gra- gracious in letting you know about me. And uh, you would probably remember, but in the early days, they had what they call a wet battery that sat outside a radio. So for the radio to work, you had a wet battery, and it came with some leads hooking into a radio. There's some information for young people. And uh, go back in the technology. And uh, it had to be charged up with acid and filled with acid. And uh, I was only five years old at the time, and I dropped, the, uh, I dropped it on the floor, on the kitchen floor, and of course the thing smashed. And uh, I went out and, and hid in a little hole in a thorn hedge 
in the cold and the wet, and I stayed all day because my father was at work, and I stayed all day uh, because I couldn't come in. Not the hunger, not the cold, not the wet, nothing uh, would be greater than the fear of him catching me and getting home. And finally, one of my eldest sisters uh, extracting me from that little hole in the thorn hedge. And uh, I was petrified of him. I was absolutely scared of him. So I grew up to hate him. I just hated him. Uh, and uh, in, in transitioning through, all, and my mother was, uh, I only realized in later years what my mother had really gone through because my only memory of my mother was going to the bedroom all the time and crying and crying and crying. And all I could hear her was in the bedroom crying. That's all I remember much of my mother or doing the work that she did. And so she was very emotionally removed. So I really had no kind of learned behavior, parental guidance, any kind of understanding whatsoever. And so for me, getting out of the house and, and do whatever I could do, as much as I could do, at least uh, make things uh, a little more pleasant for life, if I could just go out and enjoy myself. So three things that I really loved when I was that age, three things I really loved. I loved motorbikes and rode a lot of motorbikes, did a lot of work on motorbikes, and, and I loved soccer and played that for a long time, and, uh, and of course, girls. And uh, uh, you, you got to get a little bit of love somewhere. <laughs> and 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 I I I was was so so for me it was getting out and I got so hard and bitter, but the one amazing thing is I never touched alcohol, and we were just talking yesterday about personality and one of the big things about the personality thing is is that my personality some personalities could follow on because he's an alcoholic so I could be one but my personality would never go there because alcohol made you do two things it made you look like an idiot, and it made you look like out of control. And I vowed that I'll never be out of control, ever be out of control, because you don't know what you do when you're out of control. You don't know how people suffer when you're out of control, and some of the hell that we experience. And so I stayed away, did a lot of things, and so when I got into my teen years, I was really not a nice young man. And uh, I went out, and I would come home at the early hours of the morning, and my father would be screaming about 2 o'clock, he'd be screaming in his room uh, to, to get me so he could beat me. But I was in an old farm loft up the thing in the farm loft, and in those days there was no stairs, there was no ladder, so if I thought he was coming for me, I'd just pull the ladder up, <laughs> and I could just stay up in the, in the little loft, and uh, you, you know, some of those nights, though, they, they were hard, and they were bitter, and there's this tiny little window just in the, in the loft up, I had nothing between me, but the snow and the ice, just with slates, and that was always there, and no electricity or anything like that, I remember looking at this tiny little window many times, and just like uh, that little thing, you know, I remember, I remember the house where I was born, the little window where the sun came peeping in at morn. It never came a wink too soon or brought too long a day, but many times I'd often wished the night had borne my breath away. I, I had felt that perhaps, you know, th there's no, li what kind of life is this? So I grew up to be incredibly angry and up into my teens, and, and, uh, Maybe you need to take over. And now. did that? Did that? Um, I know we know with people, and there's a number of us, a number of them here today. Does that? Did that affect your view of God? I mean, you come to know God at this age. Jesus asks us to refer to God as a Father. Um, how did, did that? Yeah. Did you have? Um, how did you go with that image relation there? Well, the hypocrisy of it was we were Presbyterians, and so we to go to the Presbyterian Church, and it wasn't true of all Presbyterians, but the one we were going to was modernistic, so they didn't believe in Jesus dying and all the different things. But, but it wasn't true of all Presbyterians, which I found out later. 
but we would learn a lot of things, which quite remarkably, we would learn a lot of stuff, but we would go to the Presbyterians and then come home from the Sunday school, but you went there because that was the image. In Ireland, you either went to the Catholic Church or you went to the Presbyterians. So that was the image we had, and you did business there, and the people did business there. But we would come home, and of course in Sunday school they give you Bibles and they give you little things. But as soon as we got home, my father took the Bibles off us all and threw them in the fire and burned them in the open fire. So we, we, we never got to doing that. So as far as God was concerned, God is only this big person. He's a big ogre in the sky, and he's just waiting to zap us like a bug as soon as we step out of line. And all I have is a punishing God. And so really my view of God was so distorted, and I... I didn't even really know if I wanted to know what God was about or very much. So it didn't, it really wasn't something that had a profound effect of saying, as you know, in the concept. And that at that time, it didn't, it was just that it was a, an uneasy really for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yet, um, in counseling other people, you also know that um, that can influence people's view. But yeah. back to that question of, when you have a parent like that, mm -hmm. and you have this instruction to honour your mother and father, how do you help people reconcile, to reconcile that? Now, uh, when I fast forward, uh, later, in, uh, later in life, my father had an amazing conversion. So, so God came and met him in a profound way. And then, so that's wonderful, and he will be in glory, and that's wonderful. But I, uh, it's how we define honour, uh, because everybody has a different way of defining honour. And my only way of defining honour uh, would, would have only been out of general respect. First, it was respect for the fear of the whole thing, fear that was lodged in it, but just general respect. So I never knew my father as dad, but I would respect him as my father. So I never did anything at all for him at all, out of respect or honour or anything else early on in my life. I just, I just wanted to kill him. So there was no honour. It wasn't until I, I met Jesus and that would be the, the place. So initially, there was no such a thing as honor or respect or whatever. You, if you, you respected because you were going to get beaten, that was the only way that you respected. So there was nothing until I finally came to Jesus. Yes. And, and meeting Jesus really helped change your heart towards your father? Is that what you're saying? Meeting Jesus, because, because in, in Ireland they say, you know, you don't say you're stupid to see a thick man, you're just thick. That's all you are, you're just thick. And so all I ever heard from my father was, you're a thick man, you're a thick man, you're a thick man, you'll never be anything, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never go anywhere. And, and, and uh, uh, when, I, when I finally got my first degree, I was in motor engineering, and, and uh, I got my first degree. And when I got my degree, I came home. I was living by myself in Sydney. I had moved 12,000 miles away. If I had gone any farther from my father, I would have been heading back home. But, but I'd gone 12,000 miles away, but he was still controlling my life. That's the, that, that's the thing about hatred and bitterness and anger and so on. It just controls your life. You can be 12,000 miles away, and my father was still controlling me. When I sat for my exam to go into college, I'd be sitting there, and, I, and my father would come sneering, you in college? You'll never be in college. You're not good enough to be in college. You're too thick to be in college. And so when I got my first degree and, 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 uh, and made it, in a way, I was out in my, in my backyard in my little flat, and this big screen comes down, and I could see my father, and one of the times he was really beating us up, and I could see him. At that moment, I hated him with such a murderous hatred, but at that point, I had been born again, and it wasn't until that night that, that, that it really happened, and I saw this picture, and I thought, I know what I'm going to do with him. Now I'm big enough, strong enough, 
I'm going to get him. I'm going to make him read everything in this, in this paper about my degree. And then I'm going to tell him what a liar he was. And then I'm going to kill him. That's exactly what I thought. And at that moment, God spoke to me. Now, reversing back to an incredible conversion I had on my way to a soccer match, the, 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 uh, I knew God had called me. I, I would be up in my little farm loft at 2 o'clock in the morning, just nobody telling me to. Like, nobody ever told me. When I came to Christ, I was on my way to a soccer match. Nobody told me I had to pray, I had to read a Bible, and, and I couldn't fornicate anymore, and I couldn't do this anymore. Nobody told me any of that. I just fell in love with Jesus. Because on my way to the soccer match, just quickly to tell you, on my way to the soccer match, I encountered Jesus. And I had a vision. I didn't know anything about visions. I didn't know anything about anything. I had a vision. And I had a vision of the cross. And I saw Jesus dying for me. And it was like all this stuff started to break inside of me and break inside of me. And, and I cried and I cried. I would never cry past five years of age because I wouldn't give my father the pleasure of watching me cry. And so now I'm crying and crying and crying as everything seemed to be breaking and falling away and falling away. And for the first time in my life, somebody really loved me. Somebody really loved me. And the love of Jesus began to pour in and pour in and pour in and pour in. And in the end, somebody then finally gives me a Bible and I go up into my old farm loft. They didn't tell me to pray and read and do. I just got completely in love with Jesus and I didn't need to be told anything. I just had a relationship with Jesus. And so for me, that was a wonderful, you know, it was just so incredibly wonderful to be in that. Even I was still living in the farmhouse and, and my grandfather, who had actually murdered quite a number of people, um, and, and uh, he, he was some vicious guy, my grandfather, and I had lived with him for a couple of years. And I, I thought when I got saved, I was with him at one point, and I thought when I get saved that he would be that excited, and I could tell him about it, and he could come to Christ. And he was sitting poking, the, the, you know, the big pokers they use in the open fires, and he's poking this, and it's red hot up to here. And I'm telling him, not excited, I found Jesus, and I'm in love with Jesus, and I'm telling him about it. And the next thing, he pulls this thing out of the fire, and it comes right up to me. And I knew that he'd murdered people before. And, and he got away with it. He never got once caught for doing it. He, he was very smart in how he was able to work with it. But anyhow, and he pulled this thing right up to my neck. He said, you, my, you say one more word, and this will go through you. Boy, I knew he was going to be doing that, so my first witness did not work well. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your friends about Jesus. Uh, Pardon? And so with all, this, with all this hatred, you still meet Jesus, you love him, yeah. but here you are, 20 years of age, getting your degree, and you're imagining murdering your father. Yeah, 22 or 23, yeah, that's right. I did, because, and that's the big thing, and that's what we'll be teaching about, you know, in the spiritual body, because he met me, and it was a regeneration of the soul, the regeneration of the spirit, you know, coming alive. And, and, uh, and so the biggest challenge was that that, that night the Lord spoke to me, uh, at the, in the little flat. It's about 10.30 at night, and I had been in a senior position. God had really favored me. When I came to Australia, I could not believe the favor of God. I got uh, the, the work, the jobs, the education, and so on. It was just incredible. And, and, uh, uh, but that night, I was standing at my 10.30 at night in my little flat, and, and I, I wanted to kill him. And God spoke to me, and he said, if you never forgive your father, you will never be in ministry. And I knew God was calling me to ministry up in my farm loft. And he had said, you'll never be in ministry if you don't forgive. Forgiveness, forgiveness is, is the greatest healing therapy in the world. And, and, uh, 
Uh, can I just say something about that one? Because this is something powerful. Some of us find it easier to forgive than others. Some people hold on to things for years, but it only destroys you, you know? Forgiveness is so powerful. And I remember uh, when, in, in other instances, I put them together to show you the principle. But I remember what had happened to me and some of the things, and I just said, and the Lord spoke to me to forgive, and I said, no, I do not forgive. I don't want to forgive, and I'm not forgiving. And it's like Dad was saying this morning, you know, we tell God how it should work, and how we should do that, but I'm not forgiving because you don't know how, what this means and what I've lost and what they've done to me, and I'm no, I will never forgive. You know something, I just want to do this because one of the scriptures that kept being pounded out for us later was this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But you had to put on a special King James voice for that. And, <laughs> and he said, but not in your own strength, but in the strength of him who works in you. Wow. And uh, who works in you both to will and to do of your own good pleasure. And I said, Lord, I am not willing. I just can't do it. I honestly can't do it. You know I can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm too injured, too hurt. It's too much. It's too great. I can't do it. And the Holy Spirit took that very same scripture that had slayed me before and used it. And he said, and God spoke to me and he said, I know you're not willing. All I'm asking you to do is to be willing to, for me to make you willing. And if you're willing for me to make you willing, I will do the willing and the willing and the doing and the doing. <laughs> so you don't have to do the willing and you don't have to do the doing. If you do the willing to let me will for me to do it, I will do the willing and the willing and the doing and the doing. God always speaks to you in Irish. <laughs> That was a breakthrough for you that day. Yeah, because I said, okay, I'm not willing, but I'm willing for you to make me willing. So you're going to have to really do something. This, this happened in your early 20s because it was at the age of 21, you moved over to Australia basically as a, as a 10-pound pom. Not a pom. <laughs> a 10-pound Irishman. Thank you. And uh, moved to Sydney. You met an Aussie girl, Kath. You married her. You had three kids, two foster kids. And in that time, for the next 20 or so years, you did get into ministry. You led essentially two successful churches, or successful quotes. Um, one you pioneered, another one you took over. You ended up in Coffs Harbour with that second church. It was the largest church in the region. Mm -hmm. For all intents and purposes, you'd forgiven your father, you'd moved on, you were successful, you loved Jesus, ministry is going well, people love you. And then you hit rock bottom. Somehow you have this uh, experience that some people call burnout. What was that? Was that emotional? Was it mental? Did you get suicidal at that time? You hit rock bottom. Describe that and, and what lessons you learned in that time. Well, yeah, I went to hell. Almost feeling literally, apart from the fact that they didn't get the flames. But, but you, you know, that was, a, that was an incredibly terrible experience. But because of the way that I was brought up and because of the way that I'm wired, I just believe that you don't stop. Eating and sleeping were entirely, absolutely inconveniences. Why would, my wife always, she would say to me, please sit down and eat. You're supposed to sit down and eat. Why don't you sit down and eat? So I said, you, you then, of course, I would stand at the bar rather than go to the table. And I stand at the bar and of course I just said to her, you know, food goes down a whole lot better when you're standing up. <laughs> 
But I couldn't, and I wouldn't, and I just kept going. I was church. We had a we had a, a great church. Yes, it was the biggest there. We had a church. Some of the meetings that we would have were six hundred people at the meetings, and we would we would have. Uh, I mean, I had twenty two in my ministry team. We had an incredible thing going, absolutely. And I believe in team ministry, so we had a great team operating and working. But I I ran a business, and I also did some other stuff, and then I also uh, did the senior pastoring of the church, and and uh, because of that. I just kept going because for me, in my thinking, I was invincible. I am strong. I am able. I mean, we worked. I was working in the potato fields in Ireland when I was five years old. You, we were put out and, and, and we'd be picking the taps off the, the potatoes with a frost all over the top of them. And there's only five when we first were doing that. And went on. And so you finished, you went to school, you finished school, and then you left school. And when you left school, you, you had to get your bags off, your clothes off, and get back out in the farm. And uh, when it was seed time and harvest, you had eight weeks out of school both times. And so we didn't, we didn't get it easy. So I just thought that's what life is. You work all the time and you sleep. Growing as a teenager, I only slept a few hours ever as a teenager. I'd, go, I'd be up, when, even when I was born again, I'd be up in my old farm loft and and, uh, and just praying, and then up in the, in the morning ready for work again. So I didn't believe that we could do that. And then, of course, surprise, surprise, I wasn't invincible. And I, I came apart. I really, really came apart. And at this point, I was in a kind of a Pentecostal holiness thing, and... and uh, there's a lot of good things about Jesus, but boy, there's a lot of legalism in it. And so in that kind of setting, it was really difficult because I now couldn't perform for God. I couldn't perform for anybody. I was, I was wasted. My whole body came apart. For three or four weeks at a time, I would sleep for five minutes and then scream waking up with pain, do that for over and over and over, night and day, just night and day. And they did everything. They checked everything inside of me and everything. They couldn't find the pain. They couldn't know why I was in pain. Until finally one day they put a, a, a thing down my neck and then realized that my whole esophagus and stomach walls were all red raw. And so that's why I couldn't eat and couldn't do anything and so on. But uh, the, the fact is that in all of that, and this is one of the things, I mean, I was so far down, I was reaching up to touch the bottom. It was really horrible hell, mind you. I would never want to go through that again, but I'm so glad that I did because I've helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in all walks of life go through burnout. But in that burnout, the, the thing that killed me the very most and the thing that was the hardest for me of all, and it really wrecked me, is that I lost God in it. I just lost God because my theology, when I needed it the most, let me down. So from being a person of faith and vision and drive and enthusiasm and a deep love for Jesus, God's a million miles away. I don't even know if he exists anymore. I don't even know there is a God anymore. I went into mental, I went into mental fog because it's a mental and emotional breakdown, and then my body came apart as well. So in doing so, I, I realized that nobody could help me. I went and I tried to get help. What's happening to me? What's happening to me? I would try it. I'd go to leaders and try to get help. Nobody knew. Somebody wanted to pray big prayers for me, and they were wonderful prayers, but they were no good for that time. I needed somebody to understand, but nobody did. And so I went through absolute hell. 
didn't read the Bible, couldn't read the Bible because I would just sniff out every piece of condemnation, every piece of judgment. God's going to get me. And now my father came in. Because now, if I was performing well for my father, I wouldn't get beaten up so much. Now I realized through my legalistic teaching that if I could perform for God, he'd be a lot nicer to me. Now I'm not performing, so I'm gone. I'm finished. As far as God's concerned, I'm out. There's no more performance. And there's where my father came back into the whole thing, right there. And, and so that was, that, was an incredible, that, that was an incredibly hard time. So I went out of the church. Praise God that God had given me a revelation of team ministry because the church just went on like I was still there. And people did exactly what they were always doing. And the church just kept going on. But for seven months, I'm out, away in a little flat in Queensland, and, and uh, I'm completely and totally lost to the God, lost to the world, lost to everybody. My mind full of suicidal thoughts, which I'd never, ever been. I don't even have a personality that could go suicidal. But I have suicidal thoughts because of the incredible pain that comes. And, and of course, that emotional pain creates that. And so I was going through that. So I went through an incredible hell. And, and in that hell, I had lost God. Do you know when you lose faith in God, it's scary. Because I was so full of faith, and now I don't have any faith. And I don't know if there is a God. I don't even know if he exists anymore. What has my life been about? And, and it would be, oh, so much easier, like I said right at the beginning about the little window. You know, some nights you just wish the night had borne your breath away. That you could just go, you could just die. And, and, and I came, then I came back home, and I get a little bit of the, to the Bible to find out that verse that God yeah, gave. Yeah. So then I got back. I got back home, and, and, and uh, this is about seven months, and I, I've come home and, and, uh, because my wife would just come and visit me every other weekend or two, and she just kept everything going. I really don't know to this day how she did all that and how she looked after the family and the kids because I didn't even know that. I didn't even recognize what she was doing. I never thought about what she was doing or what the kids was doing or, or nothing. And it just has amazed me how she has stood over those months and did everything in the house and then when, and she'd come visit me every second weekend and spend the weekend with me. And then I got home. And the, for the first time after seven months, I walked in and there was a Bible. And I don't know if she'd left it there. And I don't know who left it there, but it was a living Bible. And it had to be the living Bible. Because as I picked it up, it fell open. And I'm not an advocate for, you know, boom, 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 boom thing. But I just fell open and I read the verse. Even when we are too weak to believe. Even. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is a miracle place. <laughs> just, just remember the verse off the top of your head. See if you can remember it. I do remember it. <laughs> I just, I'm just thinking of the magic of it coming up. <laughs> Even when we are too weak to believe. I put my hand up for the first time in my life. The Bible's relating to me. I'm too weak to believe. I just can't. Because in my past system, you had to be faithful. Faithful was one of the biggest things that was taught. You had to be faithful in attendance, faithful in your walk, faithful in your life, faithful in your marriage, faithful in giving to God, faithful, 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 faithful. And then at the end of that whole thing, you'll stand before the Lord and he'll give you that final well done, good and faithful servant. And so right there, faithful was a huge thing. But right now, my theology, and that's the moment my life transformed uh, in, into grace from legalism. 
Because at that moment, even when we are too weak to believe, he remains faithful. And God spoke to me, and this is my first little bit of blue sky, my first little window, first time God comes back to me, and he said, this has never, ever been about your faithfulness. Abraham, the father of our faith, believed only in the faithfulness of God, not his own faithfulness. And God said, even when you are weak to believe, he remains faithful, because in all my burnout and all my mess and every bit of failure I was in and all surrounded that, he continued to be faithful. We have such a faithful God. He is a faithful God. Amen. Amen. There's lots and lots of times... Watch you don't start preaching now. There's lots and lots of times that we're not faithful, but he never stops being faithful to us. Amen. Isn't that good? It's like one girl had really blown up at me and gone off at me, and, and she, she was mad at me, and she wasn't very nice, and she was really going, and she was in leadership, and she was a real go at me. And then once she suddenly caught herself on, she, she broke down and started weeping, and she said, you probably changed your mind about me now. And I said to her, listen, I've gone through a lot of failures, and God has never changed his mind about me. And when God doesn't change his mind about me, I'll never change my mind about you. Do you know one of the most wonderful things in a faithful God? He doesn't change his mind about me. Regardless of what I do, where I go, what happens to me, he doesn't change his mind about me. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself, we who are part of his own body. I belong to him, and he bought me, and he cares for me, and he's faithful to me, and that began my walk. And then I had, I had then an incredible metamorphosis of theology. I just, everything changed. I threw everything out that I had before and just started again with Jesus. And not everything was wrong in there. It never was, because we, we saw, we were having meetings. We were baptizing people every Sunday night in the services. We were seeing God do wonderful things. God moves despite our theology. <laughs> if God was caught up in our theology, there'd be a lot of churches in trouble. God is not interested in how we get our own little ideas about stuff, but he is interested in that we have a theology of Jesus, a theology of Christ. Amen? Yeah. And that's why Jesus became the center of my life, and I was returning back to those first, those first six years of my Christian life was a honeymoon with Jesus, in love with Jesus. I never had a problem until I learned theology. <laughs> That's where I went down the drain. Because they told me, who are you? Dost thou teach us? Well, no. Why would I? You're too smart for me. But how would we do that? And then they start teaching us that I got it all wrong, and God's this, and God does this to you, and God does that to you, and God's a big, you know, punishing God, and that you're going to get punished for everything you do, and so on. So Jesus, the picture of Jesus changed, and then there began me back to the Jesus that absolutely loved me unconditionally. Amen. Amen. Yeah, come on. Um, you realized through that time that uh, although you'd been pastoring churches for for quite a while and obviously helping people in that time and doing a pretty good job you also realize you were fairly unequipped to help people uh, both theologically and the way that you understood people uh, as yeah. a tendency with pastors uh, if they're not trained in, in in certain ways to just give uh, Cavon Blanche rules for life that apply to everyone every one size fits all type of description uh, so you didn't go back into church ministry after that but you did pursue counseling uh, I think you did some a psychology study in America. You focused on temperament study, and you became a temperament therapist. 
and also studied some neuroscience, helping, wanting to understand how people work so that in order to help them, you must first get in their shoes and see life from their perspective. Um, that's something that you're doing today and that's, is, that's where you went into temperament therapy. Yeah, all of that. Give, give us a, a helpful idea as to the importance of seeing things from other people's perspectives. Yes, indeed. Mm. That, that's what's really important. Now, mind you, this message that I travel around the world with has cost me. It's cost me far more than anybody realizes how much it's cost me. Because what I started to do, although we were, we were uh, in a national body, our church was autonomous as long as we told the party line. But now that I had found grace and now I had found a different Jesus, I was bringing grace preachers in from around the world. And so grace preachers would come and teach, and, and I also was in charge of Bible school. And, I, and, and so uh, I was bringing people into the Bible school, national Bible school, so they've been teaching the Bible school. So that was really, uh, I'm going along so well, I'm so, I mean, my whole life is turned upside down, and, and everything's going well, and, and people are getting saved all the time, we're baptizing people, and I bring in grace preachers, and then I was asked to bring in one or two of our own denomination, found out that we're not supposed to be bringing outside preachers in because they don't have the pure gospel, only we do. And uh, well, that's what they told us. And so, so I wasn't supposed to be bringing these people in. And then I rejected to bring in some of our national teachers because I didn't like their legalism. And so I, I rejected to bring them. And once they found that out, th then I get, went on the carpet. And I, I went before the board. I went before the national board. And even though I had been treasury secretary for 13 years, I went before and my assistant pastor, and we went before the board, and they asked us, and they said to us, what you have to do <coughs> is you have to get deprogrammed from this teaching. That's exactly the words. And then, you, and then we will reprogram you back to the teaching of the church. So you make a choice. That was just before Christmas, and they got to give us to the 15th of January to decide. So my assistant said to me, my assistant pastor said to me, he said, okay, should you're the senior pastor. He said, uh, what, I, uh, uh, what I want you to do, he says, I want you to make all the decisions. He said, I'm going on six weeks holidays, it's Christmas time, I'm going on six weeks holidays, and I'll not be back. I'm, I'm through, I'm finished. I'm not submitting to such terrible legalism. He said, I'm out and I'm through. And he was leaving, left me with the whole thing. But in the meantime, we had a preacher come, and David McCracken, who came, uh, and, and, and it was quite, a, it was quite a, a something that he had no idea who we were, what we were, nothing at all. And we haven't time this morning to go into why he got there. But he was there, and he called my, my wife and I out, and he just said, he said, the winds of change are beginning to blow. I can see you walking to a gate, and your hand's already on the latch. You're about to walk out into a field, and that field is like a wheat field, huge, bigger than you could ever have imagined, blowing the wind, and you're about to go through that gate. But for you to get out through that gate, and to go through that gate, you're going to get called to account, and you're going to be stood in charge for this, 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 and this. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is going great. And then he says, and, and, and then he says, he says, what you think is good, and what you're doing is good. He said, but nothing to what God has got for you. I would never have left, ever have left pastoring. I loved it. I loved the church. I loved the people. I'd never have left. But God sent the hornets. And we were called to account. And I just said, it's impossible for me to get deprogrammed because I came into a revelation of grace and I can't see those things anymore. I just cannot possibly do it. And, 
the four things that David McCracken prophesied sometime before, not even known, we couldn't have known, the four things that he said that they're charges for, which essentially was all embraced in heresy, because we were in heresy, those four things is exactly what they charge us for. And he said, but years later, he said, they will come back and they'll be apologizing to you. And now that's 27 years ago or something, and only in one of our national conferences, we have some of these pastors now coming, getting trained in what we're doing, and only recently one guy comes up who was one of the worst guys at me in the head, Sarai, he comes up to me, comes to our training, puts his arms around me, hugs me, and weeps and weeps and weeps and weeps. He says, I just don't know how you could have loved me all these years to what I did to you. And I could hear David McCracken telling me, they'll come to you and they'll do that. So then what I realize is I'm out. And then I went pioneering again after that for a while. But then God started opening up other doors, big doors, and I realized if I'm ever going to do anything, and whatever it is that he means by this wheat field, whatever God's going to bring together, whatever I'm going to do, I'm never, ever going to let anybody that comes by me again ever go through what I've gone through without understanding them. I wanted to understand people more. We didn't know how to work with dysfunctional people. We didn't know how to work with people in all kinds of, uh, of situations of their life that was brokenness and, and addictions and so on. We didn't know them. We just give them an admonition and then we give them a second admonition and then we sent them out. So we got rid of our problems. We never fixed them. But the problem, I wanted now to do that. I want to go into somebody's shoes. And that's the biggest thing for me now, working with people. And some of you that I've worked with, you know I've done that. I want to get into another person's shoes. Not because there's any test. There's no test. It's gospel. Because, and our message is Jesus. It's not temperament and it's not psychology. But I just determined I'm going to get trained. So I went to America. I did. I got a degree in, 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 in uh, psychology. I don't do that anymore because they want something different now in Australia. And uh, so I just stay with I have my doctorate is, is in philosophy and pastoral counseling. And, uh, and so then I do neuroscience. I do that because I want to do the very best, not to be a big head, because my past, my, my lifestyle, everything has kept me, kept me totally on the ground because the titles mean nothing to me apart from the fact that they open a door to help me to go to places I wouldn't otherwise go, into seminaries and into different educational worlds and corporate places where I wouldn't normally otherwise go. I just want to help people. My heart is to reach out and help broken people, help people that are struggling, help people that are defeated, help people that are going through life that normally we would never want to talk to anybody and do you understand me? Because people want to be understood. And so my heart is to use any tool that I can to be able to go into somebody's shoes and say, hey, I know you, this is the best way I know you, but I need to know what you're doing, I need to know your struggle, because I've gone through hell, and all the people want to do is pray for me, and pray for me, and, there's, and that's good, and praying is an essential thing, but to pray for me in that, please help me to understand, please help me to understand, and I just want to help people to understand. So that we, we, so that we can take that scripture in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, it says in three forty, it says, "Examine your way, secular. Turn to the Lord, Christian." The numbers of professionals that's come to Christ through my office that I've never preached to, I've never gone in and preached the gospel to them. I've just walked them through the journey because our ministry is discipling people into Christ and discipling men Christ. Many people have come through our office came to Christ eventually. They were, they were totally and completely anti-Christ 
because I started first by understanding them, reaching where we are, because the most important thing, and you know this yourself today, it's so important that somebody is scratching where you itch. Mm. This is where I'm at. And for many people being, sure, I think that's, I think for, for many people there is a, we, we all do have a great need to be understood. And yeah. uh, I know there's an old saying that says, you know, f seek first to understand yeah. uh, before being understood by someone. Yeah. Seek first to understand someone. You, uh, you've been on this side of the pulpit and the other side, you have counselled many pastors and many church people. I want to mm -hmm. ask a question about church and then I want to move on to family. Um, is there something that you would like churches, people to understand about the life of a pastor or the pastor? And is there something that you'd like to say to all pastors? This is what you should understand about your people. Um, yeah. Is there such thing as, yeah, can you, having, having no, known pastors and sit with them, is there a way yeah. that you could help a congregation understand a pastor, help pastors understand a congregation? If I, was, uh, if I was putting up some overhead things for you this morning and just le let you see um, uh, the life of a pastor and some of the latest statistics that I've got from the US. Uh, it, it's quite horrifying and, uh, and to watch what happens between the, the members of a congregation and the pastor and how much pastors suffer. Do you know that it is, it is, it's a terrible situation where there are so, so many pastors that are burning out and they burn out for a whole lot of reasons and we would not have to be able to go into all those reasons right now. And then there are different pastors. Uh, but one of, the, one of the big things in it, and it's, this is a huge scope, and to be able to answer that question uh, uh, intelligently and, and to cover all the bases would be almost impossible this morning. But if I was showing you some of the statistics of that, it would be quite horrifying, because I'll tell you this, the pastor's road can be a lonely, a lonely road. And sometimes we have to walk alone, and we have to go alone, and it's not always the easiest. And the higher up the mountain you go, the greater becomes the velocity and the wind and how hard it can be. And so one of the greatest things is that people would first just love their pastor. And one of the bigger things is, of course, is that pastor, there's high expectations in pastors. But I make this very, very clear to people that my ministry is incredibly simple. John the Baptist says very clearly, and I would say it with him, I'm not the man. I'm just simply not the man. He's the man. So my revelation is that, and ministry is very, very simple. I'm just pointing another to another. Because we talked yesterday a little about we're branches, and the pastor's not the vine, he's the branch. And the congregation are branches. And when you're looking at me this morning, disregard titles and everything else because you're just looking at another branch. And there's one branch just talking to other branches. And we're living in the same kind of lifestyle. And we need to really fully recognize that pastors are human. And pastors do take on way too much. And the biggest thing is why, for me, in, in what I do now, is a lot of pastors, they're self-inflicted wounds because pastors have got a big heart for people, but they don't do self-care. They don't look after themselves. They don't take time out. 
and, and they don't have time to know how to draw, to, to draw away. And essentially, life gets so busy that one of the greater problems is, is their time and intimacy with Jesus. Um, my life support system is my intimacy with Jesus Christ. The, the most important thing is that, that you know, uh, Isaac, and we, we all know this here, uh, Isaac, when he went, just like Abraham did, it said that he first built an altar, then he pitched a tent, and then he dug wells. And one of the most important things is that first we need to have an altar. And that's separate to everybody. For yourself, for me, for people, we need to have an altar. Wherever I go, I just need to have time with the Lord. I just need to be able to time to hang out with Jesus. Not go into, man, in our mother days, we used to use that scripture. I hope I don't step on your toes this morning. If you don't like this, disregard it. <laughs> but, but, but we used to be told the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And so we were hammering heaven, you know, trying to change God's mind about something, trying to make something happen, beat God up, beat heaven up. And the whole context of it was wrong. I, you know, I came to realize that's not even what Jesus is talking about. We, we want to try to make something happen. Do you know something? This might surprise you. I pray less now than I've ever prayed. Two or three things. One, I've had enough theology to last me until Jesus comes. <laughs> and number two, I pray less than I've ever prayed. I just want to hang out with God. He's heard that much from me. I, I, I want to tell you something. I was, in my, I was in my office a couple of years ago, and I'm in my office, and, and I, I only learned this about well, maybe three years ago, and I'm really praying and asking God and hanging in, you know, but not doing the bombarding thing because I got past that, but just going on and praying and praying. And the Lord spoke to me as clear as you hear me speaking to you now, speaking in my head, and the Lord spoke to me and he said, you talk too much. <laughs> I said, that could not be. <laughs> Me? The one thing is, <laughs> I tell you what, God doesn't change his mind. Well, once, God, once God has his mind made up, you, all, all the prayer in the world won't change the mind. God has got the mind. I, you, you talk too much. And you know what? I realize that this is all about him, that I just want to spend time. And I think for leadership, for lady, for whatever we want to call ourselves, one of the things is, is just spending time to making sure that we build an altar and just hang out with God. He just wants friends. He just wants a friend. He doesn't want somebody coming with a chopping list. He just wants a friend, and then he just gives us whatever we, we need, you know? And, and, and I just want to... The Bible says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. It's cool to hang out with God. <laughs> Amen. It's just cool to hang out with God. That's all. I hang out with God, and he wants to talk to me, or I get some of the Holy Spirit moving, somebody to pray about, amen. But I just want to hang out. He's my friend, and, and I want to just hang out with him. And then, and then he, he, he pitched a tent. That's the biggest thing. We look after each other. This is so vital, building a tent, looking after family, caring for family, making sure you care for That's before he did anything. Because, of course, we understand the Christian life is first a way of seeing, then it's a way of being, and then it's a way of doing. And after all the doing is done, it's only the residue of the being that will remain. And so it's important that I'm going to look after my family. I'm going to look after my, my family, first my immediate family, making sure that they're right, making sure they're cared for, making sure that I'm standing with them, 
looking after the family. That's the first thing. He pitched a tent. He got things for his family first. And then he dug wells. And then he was smart enough to also move into delegating to dig wells. But he dug wells. Provision. So the altar was worship. The tent was family provision. And the wells, family looking after family and well-being, and, and the wells are for provision. I believe that the most important thing for a pastor is that First of all, people see you totally human, see me totally human. I can fail just like you can. I can make mistakes just like you do. I have not got an inside track on heaven. My hands are no more anointed than your hands are. Amen. I'm no better than you. But then the good news is you're no better than me. <laughs> Amen. And so praying and caring for pastor because this is together not expecting big things, but just going to the same God together so we can rest and live in rest, abide in rest, which is the most important thing. Wow. Great. Two, two more things. Okay. You can, do you appreciate that? You can put your hands together. I didn't want to stop that. Amen. Two more things. I want, to, um, I want to finish by giving you a chance to give like your life message or something yeah. you want to leave behind. We'll, we'll, we'll finish that at the end. But before we do that, pitching your tent. Yes. Um, we're all... Um, you've been married... 51 years. Which uh, we're all applauding Kath there, of course. So, um, and so am I. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have uh, 13 grandkids, um, aged from young up to their 20s. Three, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, to about 23 or something. 23 yeah, or, yeah, so yeah, 13 yeah. grandkids there. Um, there's obviously a, a silver bullet of wisdom that covers all people for marriage. I mean, there's obviously got to be a, something that there's a secret that we can all apply, no doubt. Um, uh, oh, no, but one question I did have, so maybe I'd either encourage you to speak into marriage or maybe kids, is there something, you know, the Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun and yeah. challenges of war, challenges of heartache, challenges of loss, uh, challenges of, uh, heart, you know, betrayal, those type of things are timeless. Uh, but are there some actually challenges of kids today that you think are quite unique that you'd like to speak into? So maybe something in marriage or something in family, uh, considering grandkids your age, what a, um, yeah. yeah. I'm sort yeah. of open, uh, open there. Yeah, yeah. Generations, generations all change, uh, but what we do is we have people r running today uh, in, in fear. You, nothing must ever operate out of fear. And uh, if, if you know that overprotectiveness is a sign of abuse. When you may do this, I guess that you do do this, that we dedicate our children to Jesus, yes? And then we don't trust God to do anything with them. Yes, because here's the point. There is no magic bullet, and there are no perfect parents. And there's a, the big thing is that we know Josiah took over the, th took over the throne, only a young bloke, and he had a shocking father, and he had a shocking grandfather, and it didn't make any difference to the hand of God. What do I want to say to be? No, I do not. I don't for a minute sit before you after 51 years and, and give you some ideas that you would do to be like me because the best thing to you to do is to ring up my wife. <laughs> she, she has got the better picture. Now, 
I just see, I just see 51 years as the faithfulness of God, the grace of God. I have children, some of them, uh, one, of my, one of my grandsons, is, you know, they, some of them are really into Jesus. And one of my daughters, uh, she gets to, this is, and I'm pastoring, I'm working. One of my daughters, she gets to teenage years. All she wants to do is leave home. She just wants to leave home. Everything's too confining, everything's too hard, everything's too difficult, everything's no good. I don't like the rules, I don't like to be preached at, I don't like it. She did make a commitment for Jesus, but I don't know whatever happened in, in the commitment because nothing seemed to happen. And then the youngest daughter, because she's so on fire for Jesus, and she's a little kid, she would be worshipping Jesus. And my eldest son, he's a preacher, he, and some of them, but my daughter, she just clean off the rails what people will say off their aisles. But you know, the Bible says that sometimes we, we, we go crooked about the children of Israel taking so long to get into the promised land, but yet, yet the Bible says that he took them, he took them the long way of the wilderness. Sometimes God takes some of us the seven or eleven days, and sometimes they take them a long way around. And my daughter, and she got out of home. She got out of home, and she got rebellious about everything and every value. And you know the biggest problem a lot of the times from Christian families is more about image than it is about caring for your kid. It's just about image. And I'll tell you what, God dealt with me over any image that was involved in it because she got into anything and everything, got pregnant, and all sorts of things that could happen. And oh my goodness, and then she, she married a guy that you would be the last thing in the world you wanted to, make, to get married to. And you think, man, why would, why would she want to be doing that? They all grew up in the same house. But do you know, and serving the same God. Because I, I know this, that I, I dedicated the children to the Lord. All of them. And they're not mine. Their spiritual life and spiritual responsibility is God's. I don't know that I could be the right kind of example, that I can set the right kind of example. The Bible says, bring up a child in the way she should go. Well, that's not talking about spiritual life, essentially. It can embrace that. But it's saying, train them up the way that they're wired, the way that they're made, the kind of bent they have. Help them to achieve what they need to achieve. Help them to go where they needed to go. And I realized that that daughter had gone through that legalism and the breakup of the church and we got thrown out and we lost everything and we left with nothing but a fax machine. <laughs> and that was the only thing we got. We never even got long service. And I was there, I was there for 20 years and never even got long service. But, but, but we never got a thing. She saw all that. All the parent in the world, all the parent in the world didn't change what happened and she saw what happened and... Her grandparents were part of that big hierarchy, and she saw all that. And because our grandparents, because they were her grandparents, it was a very, very close family, and then a very close family, and then uh, uh, they, they, it, we would meet for birthdays and Christmases and all the different, and then they, because we rebelled, and, and uh, they said we're in heresy, then we were not allowed to talk to family, we were not allowed to talk to nobody, we couldn't talk to anybody, so now families cut off, all families cut off, all I had was my wife and my kids. That's all I had. We had nothing. We just left with wife and kids. So the kids now are not going to grandparents anymore. The kids are not seeing grandparents anymore. They're not going to parties anymore. And that lasted for 10 years until God restored it. But you see, in that time, this is where she had this big turnover. So she went out in and she got into all sorts of, uh, in sorts of things. 
I would go to her. I mean, she'd call me and only call me, you know, whenever she was in need. And she would call. Even at the bottom, some people are amazing. She would, she, I would get there and work out a salvage unit, and even in her mess, she'd look at me and she'd say, Dad, do not come to preach to me and do not come to counsel me. Just hug me. That's all I want, just hug me. I want to do a whole lot more than hug you. <laughs> but she was, I mean, you, could be, you, you can be in the depth of the mess and still not want to be told. You know what? That changed a whole lot of perspective the way I saw it because now I had to love her exactly the same as I loved the youngest daughter who was so fired for Jesus, leading worship, cut records, did all sorts of things. I now had to love her the same, that my God loves me not only when I'm going well, not only when I'm on top, not only when I'm walking right. He never changes his mind about me. He never changed his mind about her. And I, had to, and I used to call her a princess. And she, when she was growing up, first I called her a princess because she nearly died when she was born. And I nearly called her a princess. And, and then she looked at me one day crying, the tears pouring down her face. And she says, see, Dad, I'm not any longer your princess. I'm just not your princess anymore. And I said, honey, it won't matter what happens. It don't matter where you go. You will always be my princess. Because God's not changed about me. So do you know? And, and then fast forward in that. Fast forward in that. Oh, we couldn't do nothing but just trust God. She's not, I used to say to the Lord, you know, because my wife, women are affected more. And, and I used to have to really encourage Kath. Honey, come on. Come on. She's not your responsibility. Stop it. She's not your responsibility. We will give when the need give. If she's, in the, if she's in trouble, we'll help her out of trouble. But we are not going to live our life, and we're not going to run our life, and we're not going to wear hurt, and we're not going to wear the hurt, and we're not going to wear any of it. We're not taking any of it on board. We either trust the Lord, because you can't carry it. We're not able to carry it. We don't have the capacity to carry it. And I'd have to encourage her in that. Fast forward to today, and I did nothing. So I got 51 years down the line. Really, I did nothing. So there's your formula. <laughs> and now, fast, fast, forward down, fast forward down the line, and my daughter, she's got four kids. It staggers me. I cannot believe it. She's part of another church plant that started. The kids are on fire for God. She's on fire for God. She gets up and takes the table of the Lord and she shares and talks like she's been serving God all her life. But she knows how to reach people and she's so real. I mean, she just gets up because she's got no image left. So she just gets up and hits it. And you sit there you go, oh, honey, that's public consumption. Where, where, are, you, where are you doing? But, but she'll hit it. And so I would go over there sometimes. Only just this week, there's a prophetic guy in town and uh, there were special meetings on. We, we didn't go to them. But Kath was just telling me last night when I was talking to uh, Kath, she was, she was telling me that they went to the meeting and the youngest, her, one of her youngest daughters, and they're all now serving the Lord. My goodness, it beats me. And, and, and the youngest one, the guy calls her out and he says, I got a word for you. And she's at a miracle. She's an absolute miracle. She had these terrible bad cysts and that in the system and they felt that they were cancerous and they were all cancerous inside and everything. And, and here's the thing. God seems to reach into people and you think, man, how does he heal them sort of people? What about me? What about, I'd be more righteous. Yeah, really? Yeah? No. 
And, and she gets out in prayer and gets prayer and everything, and then she goes for the ultrasound to take it now to do, decide the surgery, what they're going to do, and they did the ultrasound and they couldn't find any cysts or anything. The whole thing was cleared up. It's gone. And she goes out the other night there, Kath tells me she goes out Tuesday night, and she goes out, and the guy calls her out and prophesies over her, and she wept and wept and wept the whole time. Do you see, I just need to, I know this is not what maybe you'd like to hear, but you can't package parenting. And you can't package looking after children. And you can't guarantee that your children, we've always believed that somehow you guarantee you serve the Lord, your children will serve the Lord. That's a fallacy. Because we don't know what that means, because sometimes God has to take them the long way of the wilderness. And sometimes it's great and it's wonderful and, and great to see something happening. And, and I listen to people giving testimonies that my kids have been serving the Lord and my kids are doing this and I think, oh. <laughs> my kids are my kids and they're real. And, and now, well, of course now they're all really serving God. Yes, they are. I said, nothing to do with me. I didn't bring some wonderful bullet to them and sort them out. They just told me to shut up and don't say anything. So that's the way you can fix them. Do you know what? The, the greatest change agents in the world are love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Not that we use them deliberately as change agents, but they are. And all I want to do is that for me, it's pouring in something other than a formula, because no formula finally works. Not even the formula that no formula finally works. <laughs> Fix me, Doc. That, that really helped people, didn't it? It did. <laughs> That's right. There's an, uh, no, of course it does. Yes. Do you want to, uh, for all of us, and, and you're just a living example, we could really do this with many people, but our, um, our greatest message in life to others is actually our life and yes. is actually what God has done in us. And, yeah. and for what you've shared in this time, has, it's been great for that. But is there, is there something that when you leave the planet, you want to leave behind as your message that you'd love everyone on the planet or everyone in the church to know, is there a life message that you carry uh, that say, this is what I want the Ray Andrews deposit to be? I, I think that it's sort of typical of yesterday, uh, a pastor's wife in Tasmania writes to me, and, and I just sat there so deeply moved, so deeply touched. She kind of almost ran off my legacy on... I couldn't believe it, and I, I sent it off to one of the prayer warriors who said, that's exactly what I, because I said, you know, this is what delights my heart, because uh, th this lady has absolutely articulated exactly what my heart's been, what I've done, what I have lived for. I have not, I do not want to leave behind, I do not want somebody getting up at my funeral and talking about what a wonderful character I've been, how I have been a great husband, and I am going to make sure that will be in print. I don't want to be a good father and a good husband. I need to, I'm going to tell you people something this morning. This morning. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm not a good Christian. But there's a life in me that's a good father. There's a life in me that's a good husband. There's a life in me that's a good Christian. But it ain't me. I'm not the vine. I'm the branch. What I want to leave behind is I want to leave behind that I don't have a legacy on the legacy of the life of Jesus to live out in the lives of man and woman. 
It's all about Jesus. It's not about wonderful Ray. I don't want them parading things around, big wonderful photos up of what I've done. Please don't do it. I will be making sure I have instructed my wife that if, if I go before her, and I hope I do because I have no idea how to look after myself. <laughs> she, <laughs> she told me I just wouldn't exist if she wasn't around. I said, well, honey, you're absolutely right, so stay around. You know, leave, to deposit something, to leave something behind, is just like that lady yesterday. If I could read that to you, what she did is, she said, you have been such a herald of hope. I, and the, the person that I sent this to, this prayer warrior, gave me a word from God some time ago that the biggest thing in my life would be that I'd be a herald of hope. And she, that's some time ago, two or three years ago, and, 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 I, and that's why I sent that, because she says to me, you know, you've been such a herald of hope, and this is what this looks like for me looking into your life. Do you know that she was looking into my life the way I want people to look into my life is that I just presented Jesus, a real Jesus, in a real world to real needs to be able to work with people, and that this is not about me, but that people are singing you know, because, you know, if I could do all of this, if I could do all of these things, if I was wonderful, if I had a wonderful legacy and so on, today, I mean, then, then this morning we'll finish our hymns and we'll start singing to Ray, be the glory, great things he has done. <laughs> I want people to be able to sing at the funeral to God be the glory, great things he has done. <laughs> Amen. 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 Amen and amen. Yes, thank you, brother. And they, there's lots we can talk about it and, and say, but I just essentially wanted people to only remember Jesus in what I did and present Jesus, and they're only about Jesus and the life's about Jesus, not about some wonderful character, because that's what goes on at funerals, and, and I, I'll get sick of it. The thing is that I, I, I just want, just let's talk about Jesus. He's the King of Kings. Amen. And so may the Praise unconditional you, and all-powerful love of the Father. Blessed Redeemer. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed Redeemer. And may the ever-present help and fellowship and friendship of your Holy Spirit. Blessed Lord. Be with each of us, those to our left, those to our right, those in front, those behind, to our family, our tent, that are not represented here today, but we hold them before your throne. And everyone that we come in contact with, Lord, May we carry Jesus into our world as you have carried us. And even when we do not have the strength to believe, we say today, you are faithful. You are a faithful and a full God. And Blessed we trust Lord. and we throw our dependence on you today. Amen. 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 Awesome. Why don't you give him a hand clap this morning? Bless God. Bless you, Jesus. Thank you. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.